All right, let's introduce Christine Callanan, one of our favorite and most exciting people to, to be here, but worked together with Christine a long time ago and have been adversaries and friends for a long time and our first prosecutor that we've ever had on. And so I will start, I'll tell a little story. Uh, I think the first case that I ever had, we call her Cal, uh, but with Christine was um, a shooting case that I was the defense attorney on and, and she was the prosecutor and called her on the phone and I said, I think this guy is innocent. And she said, why do you think that? I said, because I looked at the video and I don't think he matches. She said, when can you be in my office? I said, tomorrow, I believe. And we sat down, went through the evidence that I had. And she said, I'll get back to you. Let me, give me a couple of days and called up, said, we're going to dismiss the case. I agree with you. And there are not a whole ton of prosecutors that I've met that would have handled it that way. And that was our first case. And she's beat me um, <laughs> several times since then. But it is uh, the way, in my opinion, the job is supposed to be done. That's how we started. Uh, we knew each other before that, but that was the first case we had against each other. And something that I know I respect a lot as uh, just an attorney. And so she's done everything. She's done tons of murder trials. She's done tons of serious cases. She's been in Monroe County, Wayne County, and uh, handled all types of cases and just does a, a nice job. And we expect a lot of, of great things from her, but we'll, we'll ask her the questions and let her talk about some of, of her experiences. And I know Jerry and I are looking forward to kind of breaking down some of those experiences today. But uh, so tell us tell us about where you grew up. I know the answers to some of these questions, <laughs> but the people the people listening do not. So tell us where you're from and how'd you uh, become a lawyer? I'm from Arondequite originally, uh, born and raised. Uh, my mother and father are both attorneys. I'm actually fourth generation uh, attorney. So from a young age, I knew I was going to law school and going to become a lawyer. As my mom says, it's a genetic defect. I didn't have a choice. So um, she doesn't practice criminal law, though. She does family. And I knew right away that I was going to be a prosecutor. And thank God, through school, I went to St. Lawrence for undergrad, then UB Law. I always knew I was going to be a prosecutor. And luckily, Mike Green hired me uh, right after I got my bar results. And I started the DA's office in Monroe County, and I loved it, and I still love it every day. So how do you go about becoming a lawyer when you're fourth generation and everybody knows you're supposed to be a lawyer? Or I, I know you have several siblings who are actually not lawyers, so they didn't have the defect. They, they, they skipped the, uh, the genetic defect. I Actually, most people, when I would be out with my mother, would be like, why are you letting her do this? Like, don't, why would you need another attorney in the family? And I always was, I thought it was the sweetest answer because she said, well, we could always use good ones. And before I ever even got into law school or touched a case, my mother always believed in the fact that because I wanted to be a prosecutor that I would be one of the good ones. And I knew going into law school, you didn't have to have necessarily a pre-law degree. You just had to have good grades. So I took uh, psychology. I got a bachelor's in psychology, which I found most interesting. And I think it helps a lot in the job and understanding people and dynamics. And then when I got to UB, I did a criminal law focus because that was all I found interesting and really wanted to do. And every step along the way, as I kept doing things, it kept reaffirming to me. And I interned at the DA's office when I was in law school as well. And being in the courtroom and seeing what everyone did and how you get to be an expert in all different issues, just depending on the case and the time and how much you get to learn in every day is different. I was like, this is where I need to be. And luckily, like I said, I love it. And it's also one of those things too, like you said, our case together, the reason it was able to be resolved the way it was, was because you came to me and you made some concessions and said, okay, my client will stay in, but let's figure this out before we get down a road that we can't come back. And I said, okay, then let's do that. And you presented me all the evidence. And I went to my investigators and I was like, these are the boxes we need to check before we can go anywhere with this, with this arrest. And 
I remember you and I talking once the investigators came back and it was very clear it wasn't your client. You were like, you can just, you can go no bill this in grand jury. It can be resolved. Like, let's just get him out of jail and it'll get dismissed. And I was like, no, your guy deserves to be in court and here the charges against him are dismissed. And that was the way we did it because that's the right thing to do. You know, always room for good ones. So tell us, tell us a little about your kind of history through Monroe County. So you, you become a DA. I become a DA. Mike Green hires me shortly thereafter. Sandra Dorley, Dorley, Sandra Dorley becomes DA. Uh, when she becomes DA, I was in local court still. So I was doing misdemeanors. I had been a DA maybe, maybe nine months. And I got promoted because there was turnover in the office and I went to DWI and I started prosecuting felony level DWIs and Sandra changed things up because it used to be with Mike Green. It was always based on your time into your office was your promotion. That was how you moved up. You just had to wait. And when the opportunity came, you would take it. Sandra said, come and get it. If you want it, if you want a promotion, show up, tell me why. And, you know, maybe you'll get it. So after maybe two years in the office, I said, I want to go to violent felonies. I want to prosecute major felonies. And luckily enough, uh, Perry Duckles, who was the chief of major felonies at the time, had confidence in me and believed in me, even though at that point I'd only done one felony jury trial ever. But I told him, and I still believe it to this day, that I will outwork everybody. I will do whatever I need to do to make sure cases are being handled the way they should and completely prosecuted as much as they can be. And he believed in me and Sandra believed in me. So with only two and a half years under my belt, I was in violent felonies prosecuting uh, kind of the worst of the worst, both criminally and um, just facts of cases. They, was, they were brutal cases. And I got to do about five years in violent felonies, uh, doing homicides, assaults, burglaries, robberies, all kinds of cases, and then the opportunity came to go to Wayne County and be the second assistant there. They had just gone through a change at the district attorney's office there. Uh, Rick Healy, who's now a county court judge, had been district attorney of Wayne County for 25 years, uh, one county court, and so there was a new district attorney, Mike Calarco, who won, who, although he had been a prosecutor for a significant amount of time, had never handled uh, uh, murder or, or violent felonies. So he came and we talked and there was a need for it. They were backlogged. They had like seven or eight homicides they needed prosecuted. And he asked if I would come and take over those cases. And I jumped at the opportunity. And that was five years ago now. So let's, uh, I have some notes. I have some questions, but let's talk about some of the some of the cases that you've done. I, I know one that got a whole bunch of press was U of R kidnapping case. I think you did that with Matt Schwartz, if I'm not mistaken. You are correct. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that case and your role. And you were still in Monroe County then, I think. I was. I was uh, in major felonies. And actually, I had been assigned a robbery case where uh, a defendant had kind of set up an inside job robbery where he uh, set up some of his friends to get robbed, um, who happened to be uh, drug dealers. And those individuals that got robbed realized fairly quickly that this guy had set them up. And uh, so in retaliation from that crime was how we got to the U of R kidnapping. But because I was on that initial case for that robbery, uh, when the U of R kidnapping happened and they had, thank God, been able to save those two college students, um, when Matt Schwartz got assigned the case, he was looking for a second chair because it ended up being eight uh, co-defendants on the case, uh, I got the call because I had the original case and knew kind of the underlying facts and how we ended up where we did prior to the kidnapping. So that was by far the like biggest publicity case that I had done at that time with the most co-defendants that I had ever seen and with the craziest amount of facts of two college students going missing for a long weekend a SWAT team, like, breaking into a house to save their lives, and then 
slowly developing and walking back this web of all of these co-defendants and how they got involved and how much they were involved and what the end game was that, thank God, they never got to, which would have probably ultimately been killing those two kids if they, the Rochester Police Department didn't do such a great job to get to that house before it could be done. Yeah, and for the people who listen who aren't from here, U of R is University of Rochester. It's our biggest university, um, I would say, multinational. It's a big thing for, for the city of Rochester, and to have a couple uh, kids really get abducted out of the U of R was a big thing for the community at the time. Yeah, the school was terrified. These students weren't from Rochester either. They're from Chicago, so they had no real connection to the area, which made it even more uh, kind of a who done it. How did they, you know, this isn't their neighborhood. This aren't these, uh, they don't have connections or ties to this community that would result in them missing. I know initially people just thought it was, you know, a drunk college night out where you couldn't find somebody. And then as the weekend went on, uh, it became very clear that it it wasn't that kind of situation and something had gone terribly awry for these two to be gone for almost a 72-hour period. So what, what uh, take us through, what was your kind of strategy and like a little of the behind the scenes for the prosecution as you worked that up towards trial and I think some of the people pled and then you eventually get, you know, Tell us what, what you and Matt were working on, how you how you planned it out and how you did it. So we initially get involved after the two students are saved, after the SWAT's gone in and gotten them out of the house, and they're slowly arresting. Um, you know, it was easy because some people were in the house, but other people had tried to flee. Um, and we had a lot of witnesses that were kind of involved, mostly because it was a drug house and they were going to buy drugs and would see little pieces and you had the entire Rochester Police Department working on this case. It was them um, on all different angles, not just the major crimes guys who usually do the homicides, but also, you know, um, their special investigations. Bureau was huge in helping out and so it was putting together all of these small pieces. Um, And so when Matt and I got involved, there had been so many man hours put in that Matt and I had to kind of like get it all organized because working with law enforcement is great and they are all exceptional. And I've been very lucky in that, especially Rochester Police Department Major Crimes is bar none, one of the best agencies and uh, subsection of the Rochester Police Department. And they are so good and they get everything for you. But when you're a prosecutor, you gotta try and break it down to a very understandable thing. So when you have eight people involved in two people missing in a timeline that spans an entire weekend, the biggest thing that you have to do is kind of make a timeline and then decide what you need to prove, how you're going to prove it without too much of the outside noise that can confuse people, can make the case too convoluted. You want to give them a straight story. And then also you've got to kind of do a hierarchy of responsibility and figure out who are the most egregious people in this group of eight and who are less culpable or less responsible. And then in some of those cases, we had two co-defendants plea and cooperate against uh, some of the worst actors. Um, some just pled to be done because the proof was so substantial. Um, and then at the by the time we got to trial, we were down to four co-defendants um, with two of uh, the initial females who were basically, it was a a trap they had set up to kidnap the guys, lure them, thinking they were going on a date and meeting up with girls. And they brought them to this house in the city and they got jumped and then they were held there for 72 hours. But those two defendants removed themselves kind of from the rest of the violence and the rest of the holding them for the weekend, but they were the start, right? So that was the easy way to start into this story that then the victims, once they were in that house and living that way for 48 hours, after those girls left, were able to actually testify and fill in the rest of it. So as prosecutors, Matt and I had just unbelievable amounts of proof and little pieces you can always put in more. And I think the prosecutor's biggest job is to streamline something to the point where you don't miss anything that's important. So there is no gap that a juror or someone is trying to fill in on their own, but also not to overtry a case where there's so much stuff that people get lost and they don't even know what they're trying to figure out or what question they're actually trying to answer when they go back to deliberate. So then what happened at the trial? 
At the trial, all four of them were convicted, um, some with of more counts than others. Um, the most um, kind of like the, the top of the pyramid, I guess, in the way to put it, and the one who was the most egregious in his actions once they were um, arrested was Lydell Strickland, and he went to trial, and he ended up with some crazy uh, sentence of like 100-plus years to life in prison because um, he was convicted of you know kidnapping in the first degree and multiple counts of assault and weapons. And he he was the one that, although he wasn't on the ground floor when the plan started, he was the one that kind of took it over and made it as awful as it ultimately was for those kids. And Justice Alex Renzi? Yes, Judge Renzi uh, overheard all of that. And it was a, that was also one of the most substantial indictments I've ever done. I believe at the end of it, it was 26 counts. Um, between different weapons charges and assaults and all of that, it was a uh, and with eight co-defendants, it became pretty substantial. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about how you go about figuring out who could cooperate, who's who you'd like to cooperate, and kind of how that goes down a little bit? There are a lot of factors. You um, a lot goes into who the person is, um, as far as what's their criminal history like. Have they um, do they have past convictions that are that go right to their credibility? You know, larcenies, forgeries, perjuries, anything like that, because you don't want to try and say to a straight face to a jury, this person has admitted and been convicted of lying, but now you should believe them because they're here with me. Um, but even beyond that, you can sometimes get beyond that if what they're saying has enough evidence that can corroborate what they're saying. So, yeah, they might not be the most upstanding citizen like those girls at the U of R kidnapping. Um, they didn't have any criminal history prior to the case, but also we had video from different ATMs and areas that showed where the car was driving. We had their cell phone records showing text messages. So it's always good when you can look at a jury and say, yeah, they're not great. I usually say, you know, I'm not asking you to like them, but just because you don't like them doesn't mean you can't believe them. And you try and make that distinction and you can believe these people because, and you give them all of this. Also, what's important for me is when an investigation is going on, you want people that have been at least semi-honest or as honest as can be in the investigation. Because if the first time they meet with police, they say, I, I know nothing about nothing. And then the next time it's a different version and there's a third version and a fourth version. Again, it's hard to look at a jury and be like, but this version that they're telling you today is the true and accurate one. So you uh, credibility is huge. So you try and find a witness that for cooperation has been honest in the investigation as much as you can get that. And if they haven't been somebody that you have enough outside evidence to make them um, more credible because you can say, look at all these pieces that show that they're not just saying what they want me to hear or what they think is going to be the best outcome from them. It's actually stuff that we can prove. And to follow up with that, like how would you decide what that cooperating witnesses um, benefit would be? It's a case by case basis. It depends on what their top charge could be because in some cases, you know, those eight co-defendants, everyone had different charges. Those girls had pretty substantial charges since they were a part of the initial abduction and kidnapping. So they had a really big range of what they could be looking at. So even though they didn't have any criminal history, they still ended up with their cooperation doing nine years, I believe. Even after coming into court and testifying, they still didn't get that great of a deal. But it all, you have to kind of weigh what's their history, what are the charges they're facing, and then what it's ultimately worth and how, how fair it is to these people that you still have to look at and have conversations with victims and witnesses and explain to them, yeah, this person's not great, but trust me in the fact that what they're getting is fair and it actually gets us closer to the ultimate goal, which is to get, you know, the worst of the worst. We could talk about that case for days probably, yes, but that's, that's <laughs> um, really cool just to hear the backstory a little bit. So you make the transition to Wayne County you have all the backlog of murders. Uh, Jerry and I grew up in Wayne County. I remember it was it was a kind of a tumultuous time there, and some violence in the community. And the DA is transitioning from Judge Healy, Rick Healy, the DA at the time, very experienced trial lawyer. Um, Mike is coming in as the elected DA, and who's going to do the murder trials? And that was pretty clearly 
going to be you once you were hired there. So, so I think there was there were several cases, um, some which I think tried and some which settled. Uh, but talk talk to us a little bit about the transition from really a small city, in, like an inner city Rochester gang violence, um, serious stuff. Wayne County is pretty rural and, and a little bit less violent, but that also comes with less experienced police officers. They haven't done a hundred murder investigations. It was a, it was a huge transition from um, working with the Rochester Police Department. And in, in Monroe County, we work with everyone, but it just happens to be most of the violence is in the city, which results in it being uh, RPD. But getting out to Wayne County, the homicides that we had pending were investigated either by two of the entities, the Wayne County Sheriff's Department or the troopers, um, which are the large uh, agencies out there. Um, and then underneath them, depending on where the homicides happened, and when I got there, there were a couple that happened in Newark. Um, Newark has its own police department, so you would have some information from the Newark Police Department prior to them turning it over to the New York State Police. So when I got there, there were multiple homicides and actually multiple co-defendants on a bunch of homicides. So there was a homicide in Williamson where a, a daughter um, and her boyfriend plotted to have her mother killed for an insurance payment. And so by the time I got to Wayne County, they had previously uh, signed up one of the co-defendants who actually went into the trailer and killed the mother uh, he had signed a cooperation agreement prior to me getting there, and then um, it was trial ready. All of the hearings had been done, and it was just basically like, here are three co-defendants. Go ahead and try them. Uh, unfortunately, but also fortunately, all of the defendants had made statements saying that they were involved to whatever degree and extent. So they all had to be tried separately. And But as the trials kept getting nearer and nearer, each of them uh, pled guilty and all of them ultimately, they were charged with murder in the first degree, which is something I had never done in Monroe County because there has to be an additional aggravating factor. And because they did it for the insurance money and that was the plot, it was uh, murder in the first degree. So all of them pled guilty to murder in the second degree and took life sentences and waived appeal. And that was the Wayne County Sheriff's investigated that. And that was a case that took about nine months for them to be able to put together. And the only reason they actually continued it because it looked like a woman who had health problems, who looked like she may have accidentally overdosed on her medication or just had some kind of cardiac episode and they weren't sure. But the daughter was persistent. Where's the final autopsy? We need the medical examiner's report. If we don't get that, I can't get the insurance money. I need the death certificate. We have to have all these things. And because she kept calling and the sisters of the victim, um, they were... They, they said, they were like, something happened. This isn't okay. And because they followed their guts and the investigators at the Wayne County Sheriff's just kind of kept playing the slow game with these kids. Because I, I say kids because the defendants were all between like 19 and 23 years old. And when they did that, they, you know, they waited it out. And the impatience of these kids to get the money was ultimately what kept bringing them back and bringing them back to the sheriffs to the point where they finally got things like cell phone records and other videos and, and were able to kind of put together a circumstantial case against all of them until finally, once they presented them with the proof, all of them implicated themselves, of course, saying, you know, it was somebody else's idea or somebody was the, you know, the only reason it happened was he said to do it or she said to do it. So everyone tried to pass the buck a little bit, all of them ultimately admitting that they had done it. So they all pled 25 to life? They pled 20 to life. The three co-defendants that were going to trial all pled guilty to murder in the second degree with 20 years to life in prison and waived appeal because murder in the first degree leaves open the option of uh, life without parole. So all of their attorneys advised them that, yeah, it says life at the end, but there still is a possibility of parole if you are convicted of murder in the first degree. You, you could lose that opportunity at all. So at their young ages it seemed like the best result for them to try and do the, you know, that first part of the sentence, the 20 years, and then get in front of a parole board and try and get out and see what they could do at 45 if they got out. 
So I know a big part of your job in probably that case and all these cases is how you work with the police. And the police are calling you a lot, especially in a more rural county. There's less prosecutors. You're on call all the time. What's the, just explain to the listeners a little bit, what's the role of the prosecutor in regards to interacting with the police? We work together, but we have different jobs. So it's, I try to be there to help them and give them the best legal advice from my understanding of the law, because although they are law enforcement, they might not necessarily understand that how a piece of evidence actually gets admitted at trial versus just having the piece of evidence. Um, so they will call with basic questions on search warrants or, you know, is it enough probable cause for the stop of this car? And sometimes, you know, we sit down in meetings and go over cases they're investigating where they think they have enough. They want to arrest somebody. They think they have enough proof. And I have to be there to be the ones to say, but we have to be able to prove it. I get that we have good information. I get that we have a good lead. We have a solid suspect. But how do we get that into court? Because part of this isn't just arresting somebody to say we have arrested and charged somebody, but it's ultimately the goal is the conviction. So I I love it. I've learned so much. I Like I said, I was very lucky to work with the Rochester Police Department when I started. I learned so much from them and what good investigations look like, how to talk to people. I mean, in my trial preparation meeting with witnesses was completely changed after watching interviews of witnesses and victims because you see these people that deal with that day in and day out, and that made me a better prosecutor. I also think, hopefully, that I've helped them in understanding that it's not just about an arrest if we can't actually hold the people responsible at the end of the day. And so we work together, but we have different jobs. So being able to have open lines of communication, being very honest and blunt. And I think a lot of things, too, come down to experience. And I think in time, both being in Monroe County when I was here and then leaving for Wayne County, I think everyone has, both myself for them and them for myself, have learned to respect each other, their work ethic. I mean, a lot of it is got to show people, right? I'm not just out here from a big city because I wanted a lighter caseload or to get out of the hustle and bustle of major felonies. I'm out here because I love being a prosecutor and there's an opportunity here to serve a community that needs it. And I'm not scared of going in court. I'm not scared of doing a trial. I love that. That's one of the best parts of my job, but let's do it right and make sure we do it right. And sometimes you have conversations with defense attorneys and you got to take that step back. And sometimes I try to be that step back for investigators too, because they get so ingrained and like they're just right on that ground level of working the case and being there and staring at something for 24 you know 48 72 hours straight that they can't step back and see the bigger picture and so you try to do that because it's very easy just to be go 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 arrest them get them let's do it let's get these people into court but if you're not doing it the right way it's you shouldn't do it at all so what advice would you give I mean, you're talking a lot about investigators, and I know that's a lot of your cases, but there's also just road patrol police officers, which are a lot of your cases. Mm-hmm. The young police officer who's learning, what, what advice do you give to the young police officer from a prosecutor's perspective? Those are great conversations to have because a lot of them, I think, sometimes feel like they're being picked on. And it's kind of the same thing we went through in law school, right? You get You go to law school, you pass the bar, and then you're a lawyer, but nobody actually teaches you how to do what we do, to be a prosecutor, to be a defense attorney. No one, they don't really teach that, right? So you have to go in and you make mistakes and you, even with the best intentions, don't do a good job sometimes. And so with those road guys, I find that sometimes you just have to have the conversation with them, but also keep it very much like you didn't, I know you didn't do this intentionally. You're not trying to do a bad job. You want to do a good job. And so you want to instill in them that you're not just there to be like Monday morning quarterbacking them. You're there because you guys both want the same result. So these are the things you can learn. And I always try and tell them too, like I've been doing this for almost 12 years and I still make mistakes. I'm still not the best. They call it the practice of law because it's a practice. Like you have to keep doing it. You learn every day. And so with them, you have to try and, but you get, you do get basic questions of, things where uh, they want to make an arrest, they want to get an arrest warrant on a case, and they hadn't actually gotten an identification from somebody in the store where the petty larceny happened. But they had gone out and done all this great work and reached out and got 
you know, all of these inner agencies involved and police officers were sending info and they had all this. I was like, yeah, but we need somebody who was there <laughs> to say that's the person. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's right. And it's just, again, being able to be that step back for them and tell them, like, you've done all of the legwork. Now you just have to do that last piece to cross the finish line. And in Wayne County, a lot of the work is done by the road guys until it can get to a certain level where they can pass it off. So, again, being on that ground level and getting them to understand the best practices, it's tough because I don't get every call. But then when I do get the case and review it, it's always trying to have that candid conversation that isn't just too, like, preachy and teachy, but actually, like, I only know this because I messed this up one time eight years ago or last week. What, what questions do you have, Jerry? Well, um, I was thinking, you know, we're, defen we're defense attorneys. Um, Bob more formally, Greg, myself currently. I wanted to ask you what you see from your perspective the good defense attorneys do and maybe the um, other defense attorneys do. Like, in, in your opinion, what makes a good defense attorney? For me, I think it's the same rules that prosecutors live by. I mean, I understand that for you guys, you have your clients, so it's their wants and needs. But I think being honest and, you know, there are some defense attorneys that I can't, I can't talk to. You can't believe what's coming out of their mouth. And that is a terrible way to try and work through a case. And so I think if a defense attorney, the best thing they can be, especially with dealing with prosecutors, is just be truthful and honest, good, bad, or indifferent. The case is going to come in the way the case is going to come in. You have your rules and obligations, but if I find that you do anything that's underhanded or sneaky or you're not truthful and honest with me, it sets up a roadblock for any productive conversation about what the case is. And if I have some trust in you, if I can believe what you're telling me, when you or Bob or Joe D'Amelio or some of these defense attorneys call me and say, hey, this is an issue I see, I'm going to actually take that with some credence and be like, well, I better go check this. I better make sure this isn't because if that, but that's because we have a relationship and a rapport where I know you're not just sending me down a rabbit hole and trying to distract or dissuade from the actual issues in the case. Like, Let's talk about it. You and I may not agree at the end of the day, but if you're truthful and you're honest and forthright about what's going on, we can move cases along much faster in a much more productive way. And sometimes, and Bob and I have had it, where it's just the case has to go to trial. It is what it is. We've done everything we can to potentially resolve it in a fair way, but it's just a case that has to go to trial. But through it, you know, you have all of the evidence. If you ever have a question about evidence, ever want to see anything, if I trust you and know that you're truthful, we can do anything. We can resolve really almost anything just until the point where a case has to be tried and then you do it. So, and, but I think that also falls on the prosecutor too. I'm sure you've dealt with prosecutors that they tell you one thing and you know you can't trust that or believe that and you have to wait for all of the paperwork and all of the things to come through and then you have to vet everything they say. Like, these are small communities, even though Rochester is a city and Wayne County is much more rural. They are small legal communities. So if you are going to practice here, you have to be able to stand on your name. And it has to be what you're proud of and what you know you can put forward. And I think in my practice and in dealing with you guys, I know it's yours as well, that, that there's pride in being able to know you're a truthful and honest person, regardless of the outcome. Anything? Anything on that, Jerry? Any any more questions? I got a few more, but go on. I'll give you. Um, so, as a young attorney, and you're still, I mean, a young attorney in some regards. The lawyers, I mean, we all have the lawyers who helped us when we were young. Any any you know particularly good lessons or, or prosecutors that I mean, I know you mentioned Perry, um, some of the people who employed you, but. You know, what were some of the lessons you learned when you were starting out and, and who are the people maybe that you looked up to when you were starting? When I got, so Perry will always be one of my favorite um, bosses, if not my favorite, but I got to do my first ever murder trial with Pat Farrell, who is the deputy chief of major felonies. And he was somebody that you just learned work ethic from. That guy was in the office before everyone was there. And then 
uh, would stay after everybody left. And you meet him, and you wouldn't think anything of it, but then you get into a courtroom with him, and he knows everything, forward, backwards, sideways. And he had this ability when he would meet. He's now in uh, out of state and not practicing in New York anymore, so I don't mean to talk about him past tense like he's not around. But when he was in court, he just had this warmth that came across him when he would talk to civilians that when you know him and talk to him, you're like, where did that guy come from? But he was just so passionate about everything that he had this ability to talk to people that I hadn't seen before. And then the work ethic was just like the grind where I was like, that's exactly what I need to do. That's exactly where I need to be. Um, Matt Schwartz taught me organization. I, I like to think I'm organized, but Matt Schwartz is like to a T, like everything has a place. He knows exactly where everything exists. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, I thought I did an okay job, but he, it was immaculate. And my files never were in better shape than after I did that case with Matt because I learned a lot because it's great to be really good in the courtroom. But if you can't find that piece of evidence or you don't know where everything is when things come up, you can make yourself look bad. And Schwartz taught me the importance of really keeping everything super organized. Well, Pat Farrell, he was organized, but he was much more just that that just he had the thing he had it when he was in there and he worked but you didn't know that he was also putting in you know 12 hour days where you're like it just seemed very natural and effortless and I always think too when you're a prosecutor you learn from people and you want to be oh Sarah Van Strydunk for example gave one of the best closings I've ever seen in my career like the best I watched her she had a transcript from the day before from the defendant testifying was able to pull it out and reference it directly and it was the greatest closing I've still seen to this day. And you're like, that's what I want to be. And then you see Matt Schwartz in court, and it's like, well, that's what I want to be. And you see Pat Farrell, and that's what I want to be. But really, at the end of the day, when you're a prosecutor, you have to do it your way. You right. can't be anybody else. It, it will never work. Like uh, James Egan, that guy, <laughs> that guy was absolutely unstoppable. But you see him, and he's not the guy that you see on TV. He's not that kind of... You know, you would think very like verbose and big personality and all of that when you see him, but then he gets in a courtroom and no one could touch him on prosecuting white collar crimes. Mm -hmm. That guy knew everything. And so that was one of the biggest lessons was like you take the best parts that you can from people, you watch, you learn, you see what you like, you see their practices that some you take, some you don't, but ultimately it comes down to it being you. And jurors read that. If you're not yourself and I'm in a courtroom trying to be Pat Farrell or trying to be James Egan or Sarah Van Strydunk, they'll see right through that because that's not who I am. So you you do have to, I've learned so much from all of them and that's the biggest thing is as great as I usually think I am, I always know there are better practices and better people in the thing that make the best, right? They make Michael Jordan, that makes those Kobe Bryant's, like makes all of those athletes the top contenders is because they're not satisfied just being good at where they are right then. They learn every day and they get better every day. And so taking on those parts from all of those prosecutors was huge, but also remembering that I had to make it mine at the end of the day. Yeah, that's a good, if you can combine all those people, you're a pretty good prosecutor. Yeah, you'd be, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know what that would look like at the end of the day if you merged them all, but... <laughs> what, what, go ahead, Jerry. What, what? So a big part of what we do, and I, and I go through this a lot of, with a lot of clients that I meet, I draw a little chart, and I got, the, I got this from Bob when I started, but I draw a chart, and on the left side of the chart, I write mitigation, fairness, justice. On the right-hand side, I write legal defense. So what I say is I put on a two-tiered defense in many cases where I say I'm going to approach the district attorney, and I'm going to tell them some good things about you. If you're in school, you've never been arrested before, kids, all this like mitigation information. So I guess uh, my question would be, what types of things are persuasive and how do you decide when you want to offer a reduction based on something like that? I find all that stuff that you, you've listed off, right? Prior criminal history, what are they actually doing in the day-to-day -day outside of this incident? Um, I, I really can't stand um, victim blaming. I, you know, when it doesn't, when it's not mitigation about your client, but it becomes mitigation about the fact that the other person's a bad person or who has done bad things. 
if I can prove the case just because they are, like I said, just because you don't like them doesn't mean you can't believe them and this didn't happen. So I think focusing on the defendant themselves and what they have going for them. And then also, I mean, proof problems in the case, but I can have lock solid all all day guilties, like we'll convict these people, but is that the fair and just result? And that's when you get to come in and say, yeah, you could, but doesn't doesn't the community and this individual deserve a chance to do something more than just be a checked box in jail or in prison? Like, let's work towards something that ultimately benefits everyone. I know people think we just like putting people in prison because we're prosecutors, but I do believe in rehabilitation and giving people opportunities and wanting what's best for the community. I represent the people of the state of New York in Wayne County. So if you give me mitigation that says he really is trying, this is an aberration, or it was a part of a really bad string of times that this guy was going through, and and we're here now, like, let's try and do something that can make them a productive member of the community, then that can be something that everyone should want and everyone should work for. That's what, when I draw the chart, I used to, this is a moral, there's a moral defense, and that's just, is this the right thing to do? And there's infinite factors of whether or not this is the right thing to do, but you got to pick your issue and you got to say why it's the right thing to do. And then I think as a defense attorney and the fact that we were prosecutors helps, this is why it's the right thing to do. And I, I mean, as a prosecutor, when we were prosecutors, I think you help just as many people by giving people second opportunities as you do by putting people in jail. That's that's the goal. That's the ultimate goal, right? It's not just to put people in prison. It's not just for statistics. It's really like once you're in there and practicing it, you see beyond the numbers, right? As corny as that sounds, because you actually interact with these people. You interact with witnesses and victims and defendants. And so you understand that there are real lives behind this. And, you know, of course, we want to try and make victims whole and feel like there's justice for them. But unfortunately, the truth of the matter is that that doesn't come in a courtroom after a crime has been committed. It might check a box for them. It might generally make them feel better, but nothing's going to undo what was done for them or give them closure that I I can't give that to them. So I've got to make sure, again, you take the step back in the bigger picture and try and help as many people and try and make things the most productive going forward. So part of your job now is to help the younger lawyers in your office, but just some people who listen to us are law students or people who want to go to law school or, or anything like that. What advice would you give to the young lawyer, like the go person. Go to court. Go to court. I learned more just watching attorneys and seeing what you like or you don't like. Um, I, Like I said, I was very lucky. I knew I was going to be a prosecutor. I knew I was going to do criminal law, and I loved it. But if you don't, that is totally normal. But the only way you get to know is through exposure. Internships, going and watching real court, not CSI, not law and order. You get into that courtroom, and you see what actually happens, like what this practice is in whatever area you want. And then that way you can check those boxes of yes or no. Is this something I want to move forward in and look at? Or do I need to switch it up and go be a chef? Do civil law. Do civil (laughs) law. (laughs) Uh, What else you want to tell us? That's all my questions I had written down. That's so all your questions already? That's all, that's all, I, mean, I got one more. Oh, there's Jerry. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm just interested for myself personally, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I was thinking back when you were talking about outworking everybody and preparing as much as you possibly can to, to put on a trial. So I, I remember the trial that I did about six months ago, the hours and hours and hours for weeks and, and the, the days leading up, 12 hours, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. When you, in your mind, when you're out preparing somebody or you're preparing for one of these big cases, can you go in more, de- in more depth about what that looks like? How, how do you prepare for a big case like that? Oh, there's so much. We, so my biggest thing is you you have to identify not only your strengths, but your weaknesses, right? And no trial ever goes exactly the way you expect. So you have to do your best to plan for the best, expect the worst, and know that something's going to come up that you never plan for. But as long as you know your case and know what you have to prove, you can address it, right? And you can you have to be able to pivot and figure out what 
you can do to rectify the situation, fix it as much as you can, or just let it be what it is. For me, it is, I don't want there to be a piece of evidence that I haven't reviewed fully. So, you know, like you said, hours and hours, there are interviews that go on six to 12 hours. You have to watch all of it. It's not great. You rather just read the summary paragraph where the investigator summarizes and gives you the general idea. But I don't believe you're doing your job if you don't watch 12 hours. And so that is how I feel about every single. You read every deposition. You review everything. And then you got to meet with people. And I can tell you I will meet with a witness on Friday before a jury selection. They will show up on a Tuesday. I will ask them the same questions I asked them during the meeting. And answers will be different. And you just look at them like, I don't know why we do this. <laughs> but you just have to be ready for that because there's, it's human nature, right? Not, it's not scripted. It's not law and order. So you just have to do your best to prepare your best. And then you've really just got to put on what th- what's there. And sometimes it's not great. And you have to, I think the thing that always prevails for me at least is I'm just bluntly honest. Like, I get it. Like, this isn't great. But that doesn't mean it hasn't been proven. It doesn't mean that this case should just be tossed out for no reason. We're here. Let's go forward. Let's put on the best case we can. And what comes from it comes from it. And then you just have to believe that that's the just and fair result and why we do what we do. So for me, preparing for my big trial six months ago, it it really was for two main purposes. One, I felt like I owed it to my client. Like I, I've told him that I'm going to prepare to the absolute best of my ability. So I should do that. And also uh, kind of back to a sports idea. I didn't get nervous in sports because I prepared. I had shot that shot so many times. I've shot so many free throws, played in so many games. If I'm prepared, it's the best I can do. So for me going into that trial, I'm like, I couldn't have prepared more. Now I'm not nervous. I know everything. I don't have to be nervous because you know you put in the work. Do you do you feel the same way? Absolutely. You never want to feel like, oh, if I had just done this one thing, if I had just and I like being prepared to the point of like defense attorneys during cross examination will be like, you know, they'll think of something they want to get from a person supporting deposition and they'll be like, Isn't it true you said? And they're flipping through and they can't find anything and I'm just sitting at my table and I grab it and I'm like, Here you go. Here's the deposition. Because I know where every piece of paper is. I, I know where. take it from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a dirty I, trick. I know where everything is because it's to that point, right? You're so prepared and so ready that if they all of a sudden are like, oh, I'm, I can't find the picture of a car. And it's like, don't worry, I've got it. And you can just turn around and I'm like, here's everything. Because, again, it is. It's all preparation because you don't want to go in there and have a question mark or feel like something could happen. Because something is going to happen. I think but that goes back to ready. the organization. So right. when you're doing the organization, not only are you organizing, though, you're organizing it in your head. Right. And that's the, I think that's like the Matt Schwartz secret, right? By making everything organized, then you can talk. It's like writing your summation beautifully and going over it and practicing it from the written. And then you don't look at it when you actually give it. Right. Exactly. And that was the biggest thing was not only do I know where the things are that I'm intending on putting into evidence, but I know where everything is. So every person has a folder. I know when, Jerry, when I'm talking to Jerry, I want these six photographs in. I want this CD in. I want to prove these elements with Jerry. And, okay, now Bob's up. I need these two things. And everybody's got their place. And that way, yeah, when something comes up, you can be like, I know exactly where that is. Because now what's in my head is physically out there and organized in a way where I can navigate this entire thing. Yeah, I think that's one of – and we do these podcasts. We talk to – different trial lawyers and people in the system. And it's interesting for us to hear the similarities and you come back to organization, planning, the things that happen before you get to court. And, uh, you know, we always talk about judge Kitty and, and she would say, you know, she has this incredible personality and she thinks everybody thinks I win because I have a great personality. She's so technically strong. And that's like, that's a little bit of, of you, right? They think, I'm tough and I'm, I'm going to go in there and intimidate people. And really you're like, I'm waiting because I'm making timelines and outlines and I'm meeting with all the witnesses. That's the, that's the part that nobody sees. And part the of the work. reason it's yeah, the it's, grind behind the scenes that right. people don't understand. It's not just, yeah, Kitty's 
exceptional. I mean, that woman could take a whole courthouse down in a closing. Like, and that is, and, but that is what people see, right? That's the same thing, like you said, about the athletes, right? You see Kobe making that buzzer beater, but you also didn't see that he was at the gym. Like, those are the stories you hear about him now, right? He outworked everybody. He was at the gym before people were there and after they left. And so, yeah, you get to see the final product. And, of course, that's exactly, I want you to see just nothing but seamless. This looks like everything's totally fine, even if, like, things have fallen off and witnesses have said crazy things that you didn't know they were going to say. Everything is always going as planned because I've prepared as much as I can and every exhibit's marked. I come in with everything already laid out in the exact order I want things to go in. And if things get moved around, they do, but I know it. I've got it mapped out and it's going to happen. It's um, it's part of the reason we do the podcast and, and the videos and stuff is we, we love it. We love the law and we love talking about the law. And it, obviously our friends are a lot of our lawyers and we talk about this stuff and people, I think, generally find it kind of interesting. But what you see on TV or reading the paper is, is like the tip of the iceberg. And there's all this other stuff. And that's, it's really great of you to come in and explain some of that from the prosecutor perspective. What um, yeah. closing remarks? Closing. <laughs> would you like to Would you like to sum up closing remarks? No, it. it I mean, every job right, has work to it. But I think we're lucky in the fact that we love it. I've loved it every day. I still do, even on the worst days when I don't want to, I don't want to prosecute and I just want to, I want to put, you know, the books away, turn off my computer and not do it. The second the phone rings and somebody needs something or there's an answer to a question I can offer, I'm right back in it because I do, I love this job and I'm so thankful and grateful for it and to hopefully still just be exactly what my mom says and be a, be another good one. Yeah, and our family still lives in Wayne County. Our parents live in Wayne County. Our grandparents live there. And I know just as people who live in the community, we're always, uh, you know, one of my friends was in a horrible car accident that, that you prosecuted the case and the minute I found out about it, uh, reached out to you. This is a really important case. And, and that's what happened. You would do the exact same thing in any case, but it's, it's really good for a, a rural county to have a super experienced prosecutor. And they had, they had Rick Healy, who was a prosecutor in Brooklyn, and he could do any case. And I think it's important for the community, and I, I hope that, I think the community does recognize the amount of work that you're doing on their behalf. And, um, we believe in really good defense attorneys and we believe in good prosecutors so you get fair results. Absolutely. And, and takes the phone calls from the defense attorneys and tries to get the right outcome and sometimes that's a really tough outcome and sometimes it's a really good negotiation on behalf of the defendant. So just as, as a member of the community, I think we're grateful to have you out there and um, thanks for coming on and talking to us about the, the law stuff. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Thumbs up at the end.